0: Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here again. I think that five years ago, if I remember correctly, I was in this same room. It looks... okay, it looks familiar. Huh? I thought that I could repeat the, the old Marx Brothers joke. No wonder that it looks like the same room because it was the same room. Okay, it doesn't go... But since Carmen already thanked all the others, so I would like only like to thank her, and so in a transitive, logical way, all others are covered, I hope. Okay. Let me, uh, I have a, as usual, you will understand after listening to me uh, why f- some friends of mine, not of communist leanings, call me Fidel. Because, you know, Fidel's like comrades, just five minutes of remarks and then you are for five hours. No. Uh, so I will try to do it more consistently, but nonetheless it will take time. So let me begin with. Uh, brief introduction to the notion of the Big Other, so-called Big Other as the symbolic substance of our being, as it were, the symbolic space within which we human beings dwell. Uh, People usually think about symbolic rules regulating social interaction and so on and so on, but I think it is much more productive to focus on another aspect of this so-called what Lacan calls Big Other, the intricate Cobweb of unwritten, implicit rules they are never explicitly stated. If you state them explicitly, you even usually commit some kind of uh, uh, crime violation. You know this is what always interests me. how what holds communities together are not explicit rules, but the unwritten rules which are either, even uh, uh, prohibited to be announced publicly. Now, you will say I'm exaggerating here. No, I'm not. Imagine even the most one of okay, the most totalitarian communities imaginable. The Stalinists, really, they no longer make them like that today. The real old one from the 30s. Uh, you will say, but there everything was clear, no unwritten rules. Oh, They were. Imagine a session of the Central Committee where someone stands up and starts to criticize Stalin. Now, everybody knows this was prohibited, but that's the catch. Imagine someone else standing up and saying, but listen, are you crazy? Don't you know that it's prohibited to criticize Comrade Stalin? I claim the second one would be arrested earlier than the first one. Because although everybody knew that it is prohibited to criticize Stalin, this prohibition itself was prohibited. It wasn't allowed to... That is to say, the appearance, the semblance, had to be unconditionally maintained, that it is allowed to criticise Stalin, but simply why criticise him since he is so good? And, and, uh, you know, what got my point, that the appearance of a free choice had to be sustained. So how do then these unwritten rules function closer to our reality today? Let me begin as it is probably expected from me with Hollywood. Roger Ebert in his small book The Little Book of Hollywood Clichés uh, enumerates hundreds of examples which are, I think formidable, from the most obvious ones, which all of you know of course, the so-called fruit cart rule. You know, during any chase scene involving an ethnic locale, a fruit cart will be overturned and an angry peddler will run into the middle of the street and shake hero. And, you know, this is absolute rule at any James Bond or whatever, but there are much more intelligent, uh, uh, unwritten rules, right? like what Ebert calls the grocery bag rule. Whenever a cynical woman, who doesn't want to fall in love again, is persuaded by a sweeter who wants to tear down her so-called wall of loneliness, she will go grocery shopping, then when she exits, the the bags will break and the fruits and vegetables spill around, so that then the guy will step closer and, literally, help her to pick up the pieces of the fruit, which symbolically means to pick up the pieces of her life, and so on and so on. You know, this is then what the big other is, this uh, cobweb of unwritten rules, and this is how you become the member of a society, this is what false snobbery is. In a false snobbery, you follow exactly all the written rules, but nonetheless, you are not in. Because, again, you don't follow the unwritten rules. Now, let's turn to more unpleasant domain, which is ourselves, academia. I claim that today's academia, as every time, all the time it was, uh, uh, also fully participates in this dialectic of unwritten rules. Let me first just mention two rules that I remember from my own lifetime. Uh, One is, did you notice how, at least in my experience, the status of Hannah Arendt changed in the last, I'm active in academia, let's say for 25 years. I remember when I started participating at uh, symposiums, when somebody in the debate stood up and said, but what you just said reminds me of Hannah Arendt. It means you are finished, no, it means it's over. Today. It's almost the opposite. She's almost the untouchable one. Even people who, as to their theoretical orientation, should have been opposed to their, like uh, psychoanalysts like Julia Kristeva, since, as we know, Hannah Arendt was against psychoanalysis, or people like Richard Bernstein, since, as we know, Hannah Arendt was, for personal reasons, we don't know why, very much against uh, uh, Frankfurt School. Even they treat her with respect. Another rule is the rule which I really hate, which is, I think, theoretically wrong, although it masks as politically correct and it may appear as a Hegelian, but I think it's the ultimate affront to anyone who knows even vaguely what Hegel is about, this rule of historicist contextualization. If you have a debate in concepts, in notions, true notions with someone, the other other guy today, when he lacks arguments, can always play this game of, yes, but you speak about X, whatever, let's say women. There is no woman. Which woman do you mean? Spanish, lesbian, and so on. You know this false notion that that uh, that. How to put it, you can always approach the other with the lack of contextualization. Like contextualize. Give the concrete context. Why do I think that this is wrong? Although again and again you find this argument. Uh, because and here I will try to make a nicer Hegel-Marxian argument. Because if the Marxian so-called dialectic of commodity fetishism has any meaning, it says, it claims that, and this is what Marx aimed at with his notion of so-called real abstraction, real abstraction, that our social reality itself is already ruled, governed by abstractions. It's, for example, commodity fetishism means that in social reality itself you are treated as an abstract entity, as the possessor of of value only, and so on and so on. So again, reality itself already has in it this abstraction. Abstraction is not only the procedure of our thinking, it is inscribed in social relations themselves. But okay, so that I don't get lost in these preambles, my main example, the third rule, with which I will actually begin, uh, of these unwritten rules, concerns the relationship I noticed between mourning and melancholy. This may appear to you an innocent example, but when I was in Chicago half a year ago, a little bit more, at the last MLA, I know, I will not tell you names, okay, but I know of over five examples of young postgraduates and so on who didn't get their job because their their position here was wrong, because they opted for, to put it in naive terms, for mourning against melancholy. Namely, what I claim is the unwritten rule today. It's the anti-Freudian rule. The doxa today which you have to obey is the following one I claim. Freud opposed the normal mourning, the successful acceptance of the loss, to the pathological melancholy. The subject insists in his or her narcissistic identification with the lost object. That is to say, Freud's idea was, when someone close dear to you dies, or you lose him in any other way, or her, the proper thing to do is to come to terms with this loss through the work of symbolization or internalization. You renounce the real object, but you gain his or her or its meaning. You come to terms with it. Why? Melancholy is then conceived as a failed mourning. You still remain attached to the particular object, you are unable to perform what? Maybe they are justified here, maybe not, it is justified, but let's say in vaguely hegelian term we can call the Aufhebung, the sublation of the immediate reality of the object in its, his or her meaning. So this is the standard, in a very simplified way rendered here of course, approach. But in contrast to it, today's doxa is to reverse the terms, and to claim that, no, mourning is the betrayal of the fidelity to the object. And then comes all this deconstructionist jargon, uh, there is an indivisible remainder, there is something which resists this hegelian sublation, and the true fidelity is the fidelity to this remainder. So in other words, melancholy is the truly ethical stance of fidelity. You don't accept, you don't renounce the object. The one who accomplishes the work of mourning is Well, the traitor, to put it in a simplified way. And, of course, this story can be given a multitude of twists, from the queer one, homosexuals are those who retain the fidelity to the repressed identification with the same-sex libidinal object, to the post-colonial ethnic one. When an ethnic group enters the capitalist modernization, when it is under the threat that its specific legacy will be swallowed by the new global culture, what a lot of post-colonials advise us is to adopt this kind of attitude of mourning, you know. Like, I do participate in the global capitalist game, but nonetheless I retain my fidelity to the lost ethnic roots. So again, I claim that this reassertion of melancholy is not only politically wrong, in the sense that I claim that it fits perfectly this sticking to the lost roots, this attachment, continued attachment to the lost ethnic, whatever, roots, renders perfectly the ideal structure of subjectivity of today's so-called postmodern global, however we call, subjectivity. It's also, at the same time, for the same reasons, ultimately theoretically wrong. In what way? I would like to refer here to The work of Giorgio Agamben, with whom I otherwise do not always agree, but here I do, when he emphasizes how, in contrast to mourning, melancholy is not simply the failure of the work of mourning, the persistence of the attachment to the real of the object, but uh, melancholy is rather it's very opposite. If in, sorry, uh, melancholy, if in the process of mourning you engage precisely in the rituals of mourning, you mourn the loss of the object, the libidinal object, after it you lose it, melancholy offers the paradox of an intention to mourn which precedes and anticipates the loss of the object. That's the first thing to note here, I think. What makes melancholy so strange is not, no, I don't want to lose the object, I, I, I retain my fidelity to the object. It's the contrary, it's the object is still here and I already treat it as if it's lost. I already mourn its loss. Now, uh, how 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 can this happen? Ah, here we should elaborate things a little bit. Uh, the first thing to do is to introduce the distinction between object, in Lacanian psychoanalytic terms, between object and cause of desire. The object of desire is simply, the ob- to simplify it somehow again, that which you desire, the desired object. I don't know, in sexual terms, a woman, a man, whomever you want to have sex with, or whatever. Uh, on the contrary, the uh, cause of desire is that on behalf of which you uh, desire this object. And the two are not the same. When you are libidinally attached to some person, the psychoanalytic question is always, What makes you desire this object? And this is usually, even to the person, to the desiring subject, him or herself, this is never obvious. Usually, this is even unconscious. It is some feature, some particular feature which then, of course, within the chain of unconscious associations reminds you of something else. I will not go here into these boring stories of how you fall in love with a woman uh, where some feature of this woman reminds you of your mother or all these stories. It's not as simple as that. Be- why not? Because I think it's usually even the opposite. For example, uh, often you fall in love, if you are heterosexual, with a woman in because the person, the male friend with whom you have a kind of transferential relationship gave you a hint that this woman is worthy of desire. I know, for example, of not from my personal life, I'm fortunate enough, but from a friend of mine who was in love with a certain woman and suddenly dropped her, like hot potato, as you put it. What happened? He learned that the guy whom he thinks had a high opinion of this woman, that it it was really a misunderstanding, that it wasn't this woman whom this this other guy. And uh, now you will think this is an extreme example. No, I claim you get here only at its purest uh, the structure of it. What did happen to me is, once when I was young, I was involved in the usual process of seduction, and these were still old, old times of socialism, where, uh, you know, in order to get the approach to the lady, look a young girl, uh, I had to talk with her father, who was a philosopher, my professor. And the lady was, the girl was intelligent enough to notice that, uh, that how do you put it, Although she was the object of my desire, the cause of my desire was her father's respect, so that she noticed at a certain point that I'm so deeply concerned in, in fascinating, seducing intellectually her father, that at a certain point she said, okay, you two guys, why don't you talk it out and I can leave, no? And it's really between the two of you. So again, there always is a gap between the two. Why am I mentioning this? Because This allows us now to return to the paradox of the melancholic. The melancholic is not the one who loses the object of desire. He has the object, but he or she has lost the cause of desire. The paradox of the melancholic is that he or she has what he or she wants, but the cause is no longer here, and so, in other words, the desire is no longer here. So again, what the melancholic subject actually loses, is not the object of desire, but his desire itself. He has what he wants, he no longer desires it. So that you will not say that I am giving you only here cheap paradoxes, invented sexual examples. Let me give you a more tragic, ordinary, but nonetheless, I think, profound experience. Imagine yourself in a situation where you are forced, because of, I don't know, professional interests, marriage whatsoever, uh, to leave, to change the place where you live, to leave the place which was for long years your home. Now, of course, you are sad. And now I will make a naive experiment and ask you, look, imagine this situation and look deep into yourself. What are you really afraid of? I claim, if you really look deeply into yourself, you will discover that what you are really afraid of It's not the fact that simply you will no longer be at your home, but what makes you really sad is the awareness that sooner or later you will lose your very attachment to your home. That's what makes you sad. This is what you really know. So this is then, in a closer perspective, the melancholic structure. Now why all this stuff about melancholy? I think that these paradoxes of melancholy are crucial if we want to understand how TODAY IDEOLOGY FUNCTIONS. IN THE TRADITIONAL WAY, IDEOLOGY FUNCTIONS FOLLOWING WHAT? ONCE IN THE GOOD OLD TIMES OF STRUCTURALISM IT WAS CALLED THE SYMPTOMAL LOGIC. WHAT IS SYMPTOM IN PSYCHOANALYSIS? TO PUT IT IN THE MOST ELEMENTARY TERMS, IT IS THE RETURN OF THE REPRESSED TRUTH WITHIN THE FIELD OF THE GLOBALIZED lie. LET'S SAY YOU organize your life, your symbolic universe, based upon a certain lie, in the sense of something is repressed, and then, of course, the, then the repressed returns. These are symptoms, the returns of the repressed. Let's take, again, an example of mourning. Let's say that someone close to you suddenly dies. In the case of a symptom, you would repress this knowledge. Let's say your beloved wife dies of a breast cancer, you repress it, don't mo- But then, of course, you know, whatever sooner or later you go around, something will remind you of this traumatic fact, the repressed returns. This is, okay, elementary enough. But now you will say in our postmodern cynical whatever times, we no longer have these ideological lies that had to be then undermined through symptoms. Aren't we today cynical enough to accept the way things truly are, and so on, ah, I claim, no, the deception is in a way even more radical, more refined today. The structure today, predominant structure, is no longer that of a symptom, again, symptom as the return of the press, as the moments where the truth returns within the global field of a lie, but symptom is the opposite, it's, sorry, fetish, it's the particular lie which enables you to sustain, to endure the truth. Let me give you, let me return to the same example, that of a, death of a beloved person. It's a sad experience which, again, actually happened to a friend of mine, but probably not only to him. His wife died of breast cancer, and uh, what we all were so shocked, his friends, was how he was able, this friend of mine, of a totally realistic attitude, in the sense of no trauma, apparently. he was able. Not only to sustain it, but to talk about it. You know, this was how it was when she was dying, this, that, no denial. We thought, my God, is he a monster, so cold or what? Then at some point we understood. He was able to confront the truth, because the disavowal was embodied in the fetish. And it's very sentimental, almost in the style of the early Hollywood melodramas, the fetish was the cat, the cat, the, the wife's favorite pet, the cat. She simply, she simply embodied his denial. We noticed then then a subtle detail, okay, not even so subtle, of, 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 almost too melodramatic, that all the time when he was discussing his wife's final suffering and death, he was holding this cat in his hands and so on. So the idea was, yeah, yeah, we can talk, but here I have my fetish. This fetish provides a kind of a shield. No, it's in a way. I can confront truth because here it's the element which tells me that which allows me to maintain a distance towards the truth. Which is why incidentally, again it's a very simple story but nonetheless sad when the usual thing happened when this poor cat was overrun by a car, she immediately he sorry, he immediately broke down and had to be hospitalised, no? Because again it wasn't only the cat, it was that the fetish which enabled him to sustain reality was taken from him. So, I hope now that you got the point, the paradox that I'm aiming at, that uh, uh, fetishists are not, you know, crazy people who live in, the, uh, in a world of strange beliefs, no. The, the magic, almost the, the nice, realistic, pragmatic uh, solution of the fetishist when confronted with a traumatic fact is that they organize the, their universe so that they can very well survive in an extremely cynically realist way everything functions, they can talk about traumas, and so on, and so on, because the reference to the fetish enables them to maintain a necessary distance. And I claim again that whenever today we hear about all this uh, mantra, about how the loss of values, people are cynical, and so on, and so on, I claim, no, people are cynical at a certain superficial level, but they always have fetishes to support their cynicism, and the first task of a critique of ideology today is to look for these points of a fetishist belief. And they can be sometimes even surprisingly simple. See, I was involved, up to a point I even still am, in my own country, and it's nice to be involved there in politics because we are two millions. What's this? Nothing. It's kind of a small village where uh, Slovenia, everybody knows everybody else, which is why the system is transparent. What always amuses me, this is a nice example of the fetishist logic, of how The more our politicians, those who are, not all of them are, but most of them are with us also, the more they are corrupted, cynical, in the sense of who cares about ideology, freedom, let's just do the job, the more they want in their proximity us intellectuals. Why? Uh, not simply for the not simply for the same reason that these american uh, barons uh, gangster industrialists like uh, carnegie wanted you know g- gave endowments to universities to erase their criminal origins but uh, because uh, they they didn't believe in it they were corrupted but they needed someone else to believe for them they they i, I notice for example when i am in the company of Slovene Prime Minister and some other people. I mean, I'm not boasting. It's a small country. It's nothing special to him. But what I'm saying is that it always surprises me how he always turns to me and says, yes, but you know, what would you as a philosopher say? Is this okay? And so on and so on. He needs someone through whom... How to so put it, he can be sincere, although he personally is I wouldn't say corrupted, but extremely ruthless, which is why I love him extremely ruthless, <laughs> cynical manipulator. But and note so that you will not only say that I'm telling you these easy joke examples. Let me take a more serious example. This is what Agnes Heller, you know, the Hungarian philosopher I met who was teaching, I think now she's back at Hungary in Hungary at New School for Social Research, she told me she, as you maybe know, some of you maybe know, she was actually in a concentration camp. And she told me an inc- interesting example of the same logic, namely of how in the concentration camp uh, most of the people except those so called Muslims muslimanen who were those horrible the living dead simply deprived of subjectivity they didn't defend themselves they didn't even fight for things in a survivalist way you know they even lost the cruelty they simply functioned as a living dead okay this was almost the larger group, or 30-40% of them. Then there was another 30-40, even more percent of them, who were, how should you put it, those who survived by develop, by regressing to some kind of radically egotistic, uh, uh uh, life-or-death-struggle uh, uh, attitude. It was Everything was basically allowed. To steal, to lie, whatever. You did everything just to survive. But you know what is so interesting, and that's what she told me, that all these people, now I'm speaking about this category who were and perceived themselves as extreme egotists, uh, there was always, always, I emphasize this always, a rumor among them that there is one, there is one person, if not in their block, where in the next one, who retained his or her dignity, who wasn't reduced to simple egotistic survival machine, who still has dignity, who is still uh, able simply not to function as a pure egotistic survival machine, but help others function as a normal moral person, to put it. And it's interesting how even to remain the most ruthless egotist, you needed this fiction. Even if it was a fiction, there is there one who retained his dignity. Now, you will ask me, but what happened when, sooner or later, unfortunately, they discovered that this is a fiction, that, for example, through immediate contact with that person, you discover that he is the same as you. Ah, they regressed. They disintegrated back into Muslims, Muslims. They became the living dead. So you got the paradox. In order to be egotistic monster and so on, fighting all the others. You have to believe that someone there is someone. You needed a fetish, to cut a long story short. And why I'm telling you this? Aha, uh-huh, now come, we come to the, my first point, because my point is that today more and more I'm convinced, you may disagree, but I'm convinced that in our societies the reference to a certain kind of religion which, in an ironic parallel with so-called Western Marxism, I'm tempted to call Western Buddhism. The Buddhism, the way it functions in our society. I claim it plays exactly the same fetishist role. Let me elaborate this a little bit. I claim that we are witnessing today a strange exchange between Europe and Asia. At the very moment when, at the level of the, to use the old-fashioned Marxist terms, so-called economic infrastructure, the European technology and capitalism are triumphant, winning all around the world. At the very same time, at the level of so-called ideological superstructure, the Judeo-Christian legacy is more and more threatened or replaced in the European space itself by the onslaught of the New Age Asiatic thought, which, again, in its different guises, from Buddhism to Taoism and so on and so on, is, this is what I claim, is establishing itself as the hegemonic ideology of global capitalism. What do I mean by this? Although Western Buddhism presents itself as the remedy against the stressful tension of the capitalist dynamics, allowing us to uncouple, to retain the inner peace and so on, I claim it actually functions as the perfect ideological supplement to the global capitalism. What I am referring here to is, of course, the well-known topic of the so-called future shock, of how today people are no longer psychologically able to cope with the dazzling rhythm of technological development and social changes. Things simply move too fast before we can accustom ourselves to a new, to them when there is a new invention, before we can cope with it, this invention is already replaced by a new one, and so on and so on, so that we forever lack so-called cognitive mapping. And I claim that the recourse to Taoism or Buddhism whatsoever offers a way out of this predicament. Instead of trying to cope with the accelerating rhythm of progress, the idea is that we should rather renounce the very endeavor to retain control over what goes on Rejecting it as an expression of the modern logic of domination. We should instead let oneself go, drift along, while retaining an inner distance and indifference towards this accelerated social process. A difference a distance based on the insight that all this social technological upheaval is ultimately just a proliferation of semblances which do not really concern the innermost kernel of our being. So got my point. I claim that in the present situation this western buddhist notion and is fixed perfectly because today to function in today's mad circulation of capitalism you you, you 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 if you were really fully to participate in it you would explode you cannot do it so you need a kind of a false bumper false inner distance which is in an ideal way, I claim, provided by Western Buddhism, you know. It's not reality, it's all just a dream, we are not really... You have a distance which enables you to cope with it in a much more stressless way. And it's a very interesting, I'm always the attentive reader of these different posters announcing, you know, come to, to our Tao or whatever, uh, Transcendental Meditation uh, 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 course, how they always emphasize, they are usually intelligent enough to emphasize this moment, that not only will we will help you to reduce stress and so on, but after our course, you will be able to function even better on the market. No, because you will not be and so on and so on. So my claim is that if Max Weber were to live today, he would definitely wrote a second supplementary volume to his you know, Protestant Ethics and, and so on, entitled The Taoist Ethic and the Spirit of the Global Capitalism. This is what fits this is where the two fit perfectly. Now I come to the paradox of my title so that you will not accuse me that I'm totally crazy, Uh, uh, the defense of fundamentalism. What do I really mean by it? Uh, What happens within this economy, ideological economy, with the image of the East itself? The first thing that interests me is, of course, the ambiguity of this image. Let's take the ultimate fetish today, ideological fetish, which is, of course, Tibet. Okay, I will not lose time going into uh, uh, how... What I found so fascinating is how the image of Tibet, even today, and it was from the very beginning, is radically ambiguous. At the same time, this sublime place where people are exempted from the math rhythm of the capital, but at the same time, extreme filth, uh, primitivism, and so on and so on. So uh, 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 even... 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 This radical ambiguity, so that I don't lose time, uh, goes even up to the music itself. Did you sometimes listen to this, you know, low horns, almost horrifying Buddhist music? It's supposed to be spiritual peace and so on. But I wonder if FBI was not right when they saw I heard you remember in 96, this siege in Vaco, Texas, of the branch Davidian, you know that one of the musical numbers they played again and again to make them break the nerves was precisely this, this, this Tibetan music and so on. <laughs> no, I think they were right in what sense? That this is, for me, even an argument for Buddhism, what we have for, for Tibetan Buddhism. What we have here is the awareness that, almost a Hegelian insight, that this original peace or whatever is at the same time the ultimate horrible unrest. Okay, I will not go into that. What interests me is the following thing, that apart from all the paradoxes we can uh, develop here, uh, 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 not the least of them being how all, how this idea of Tibet as the, the, the place of ultimate peace, inner peace, was from the very beginning the dream of all colonizers. For example, I wonder if you know that it was already in 1904 that an English expedition penetrated into Tibet, occupied Lhasa, killing on the way, of course, hundreds of Tibetan soldiers, but that the very guy who led the expedition said when he entered uh, entered Lhasa, quote, this was his called, nice Freudian name, Captain Colonel Francis' young husband, okay, never again could I think of evil or ever again be at enmity with any man. Wait a minute. This was said by a man who before and after that statement without any problem ordered the slaughter of hundreds of, of uh, hundreds of Tibetans. So what, is my, uh, what am I aiming at here? Uh, uh, the idea is the following one. That first, when we speak about Eurocentrism, we should never, never forget that The fundamental ingredient, from the very beginning, I claim, of Eurocentrism is a kind of decenterment. That is to say, the idea that we, European, rational, whatever civilization, are deprived, or or we at some point lost some original wisdom. And this wisdom is somewhere else. And we had to go there, and through difficult ordeals, you know, this idea of the lost jewel. The truth is out there somewhere, and Tibet is, comes very handy because it's occupied behind high, high mountains and so on, that you know it's a long, difficult journey to get it. I said from the very beginning because who is the first big Western guy? Plato. For him it's clear who were these others, Egyptians. Now, Plato all the time refers to Egypt as the true locus of wisdom. It's from Plato too recent. I read them somewhere, you know, these airport bestsellers about the, the mystery of the pyramids and so on and so on. So, but again, what interests me is how I claim, in order to comprehend the logic of colonialism, it was never simply colonialism, it was never simply we Europeans are higher than the other, we should simply uh, repress, colonize the other, but it was always that this brutal imposition of our order was combined, supplemented by this false respect of the other, sustained by the idea that there in the middle of the other we will find the kernel of our own wisdom. And this brings me, finally, although I will not yet end, unfortunately, (laughs) to my title, Defense of Fundamentalism, what do I mean by it? I claim that uh, this eccentricity of European civilization, not in any tricky deconstructionist sense, but simply in the sense that we always think that wisdom is somewhere else a hidden jewel to be recaptured through violent effort, struggle, and so on, is, if you read Tibetans themselves, is what is totally foreign to them. The authentic Tibetans always claim that they can understand everything just this they cannot understand. Why do we Europeans look for the wisdom elsewhere? This idea that wisdom is to be gained through struggle, this is totally alien to them. Why? Because now I because they are true fundamentalists, and as such the only, almost I would claim, authentic multiculturalists truly tolerant. Why? Now, let me make the first provocative point. I claim that what uh, the so-called moral majority, false fundamentalists, and multiculturalists, our postmodern liberal multiculturalists, share, is both of them have this, although once it's in the tolerant, the other, the other time around in the intolerant mode, uh, but they both share this fascination with the other. Ask any multiculturalist, and the further away the other is, all the better. No, for example, we uh, white English, if they stick to their roots, it's racism. Italians, it's so so, a little bit of mafia, but it goes. Latinos, it's better. Native Americans, it's absolutely multiple orgy, immediately, absolutely far. So you know this idea that. The further the, the others what the other what we are prohibited to do the other can do it. Of course, the so called moral majority fundamentalists share the same logic of envy. It's the other uh, in their very in their very attack on corruption, Hollywood, whatever. And I recently I encountered some of these attacks because I was, as every usual narcissistic subject does, I checked in New York where do they have this book of mine, The Fragile Absolute, <laughs> I discovered that they do, don't have it in under philosophy. So by a by some divine inspiration, I looked into Christian inspiration, and there I was in the same shelf with with Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson. What What more do I want? Okay, but seriously, what they share is this logic of envy. All the time they are fascinated with the other, and I claim that if this term has any meaning at all, a truly radical fundamentalism precisely is the position which is able to renounce this envy. If you... If you read Tibetans themselves, their point is we are the center of the world. We, we have what we want, we don't envy the others. And if you look even in the, in, here in the United States, I'm far from idealizing them. I read books about the Amish and, you know, they have rape, incest, whatever you want, they are like us. But nonetheless, the reason I think they are true fundamentalists is that they don't envy. They don't, they don't have this logic out there between the Englishmen, something horrible, excessive pleasures are going on, no, basically they don't care, they don't have this logic of envy, which is why they are tolerant. And I think so the problem for me is precisely this logic of envy shared, shared by moral majority fundamentalists as well as by a certain type at least of false multiculturalists. This envy is, I think, closely connected with, uh, with thrift, thrift as one of the seven fundamental sins. And I found thrift being a miser, a miserly disposition, uh, uh, an extremely interesting category if we are to understand what actually goes on today in our capit- uh, capitalist society. Why? Think a little bit about it. Among the seven deadly sins, thrift occupies an exceptional place. What's our ordinary notion of desire, excessive desire, and its, etic- its an ethical stance which controls it? The idea is that desire is something transgressive. To give way to desire, to your passion, means, I don't know. to to let yourself go in in, uh, frenetic uh, sexual orgies, to to gluttony, to eat to death, to, I don't know, to whatever, but to to this excessive destructive passion. And then the idea is that ethics is ultimately the ethics of moderation. Ethics tells you ultimately how to avoid this extreme, how to control, how to stop, how not to go to the end. Of course, in contrast to this transgressive notion of desire, the miser invests with desire, moderation itself. Do not spend, economize, retain, instead of letting go, and so on, and so on. So, And here I would like to briefly refer to Jacques Lacan, who elaborates this point in his seminar 6, not yet translated into English, uh, with reference to Simon Weil precisely. how Lacan em- makes a very nice point here, how if you want to grasp at its purest, or Render it is purest an image of specifically human desire. Forget about these notions of transgressive desire, you know, excessive violence, excessive sexual orgy, whatever. No, the ultimate figure of this, of the subject of desire for Lacan, is this mysterious attitude of the miser. To his precious possession, you know this proverbial figure, I know this figure because I am one of them. So you know, in the evening you return home, you look around, nobody looking, you just open the chest and look at the precious object. You don't do anything to the object. It's always also an element of impotence in it. You just gather the objects, which are elevated into a kind of untouchable thing, which can only be observed never fully enjoyed. This, for Lacan, is the ultimate relationship to the object of desire. However, capitalism introduces a twist into this logic. The capitalist is no longer the lone miser who sticks to his hidden treasure, taking a secret peek at it when he is alone. But the capitalist is the subject who accepts the basic paradox that the only way to preserve, to multiply one's treasure, is to spend it. You all know Juliet's formula of love from Romeo and Juliet. The more I give, the more I have. That's capitalism. The more you invest, the more you have. This basic paradox enables us to generate even phenomena like the most elementary marketing strategy, which is precisely an appeal to your, the consumer's, thrift. If you read closely uh, 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 publicity, clips or whatever, they never simply tell you Spend more, just spend, and so on. The message is always spend more and you will uh, economize, you will get a surplus for free. That's, I think, absolutely crucial to, un- uh, to understand how publicity works. You are never directly interpolated, addressed as a subject of pure consumption. Just shop till you drop, just spend to the end. It's always, you know, this proverbial male chauvinist example, but it goes also for men. You know, like, Buy one jacket, it's one hundred dollars, but buy two and it's one hundred and fifty, and you know that's always the promise: that the more you spend, the more you economize. The ultimate image of this for me is, and I love them for this reason. Remember these proverbial toothpaste tubes where the upper third is usually in different color, and then it says thirty percent free. Of course, I'm always tempted to say to cut off and give me give me just that. No, but it doesn't go. So. What I claim here is that uh, the usual designation of our society as society of consumption, uh, I think it's not quite accurate. What characterizes capitalism, I claim, is precisely that consumption is the mode of appearance of its very opposite, of thrift. And the ultimate proof of it today, I claim, is our obsession, the attention to the figure of the junkie, drug dependence. Why is it that in our era, and not before, although before they also did use drugs, but as you know, for example, 100 years ago from the Quincy Baudelaire and so on, whom 200 years ago whenever, when they had drugs, this was simply a kind of, a, okay, not very respectable thing to do, but it wasn't perceived as such a threat to, to the social texture. I claim that precisely the junkie is effectively the only true subject of consumption. He, is a, he really goes to the end, consumes himself in his unbought consumption without reserve, without this, uh, without this element of thrift. Okay, since I'm approaching the end, if you allow me, okay, I will do the cynical trick and propose you the following. Let's say the discussion begins, and I'm now asking myself, what did I want to say in the remaining? Okay, I'll do it very briefly. My idea is how uh, cyberspace ideology, which is, I think, in religious terms, gnostic ideology, uh, intervenes here in order to resolve this tension between thrift and consumption. There you are allowed to go to the end, to act out all your destructive fantasies and so on, but in the virtual mode, in the mode of virtuality, in virtual space. So uh, let me just enumerate uh, very briefly a couple of paradoxes of cyberspace. First is the the ambiguous fate of the body, of the bodily experience in it. Usually we we perceive the so-called progress of civilization as from the concrete form to more and more abstract forms, speech, book, and so on, and so on, abstract signals. But in cyberspace or virtual reality, at the same time, you This abstraction reaches its high point, reality itself dissolves in a series of zeros and ones, but at the same time the body returns, the virtual body, a kind of ethereal, non-material body. And I think this is ultimately what Gnosticism is about. This not spirituality, which is a strange bodily spirituality. The idea not simply of leaving behind this heavy, inert material of our body, of entering pure spirit, but of entering another bodily dimension, precisely the dimension of kind of a spiritualized body, uh, body of ethereal ghosts, uncanny uncanny virtual body. Uh, the next point here would be what interests me in cyberspace is how. Cyberspace is part of a larger image of what goes on today, where, in a way, self-objectivization overlaps with its opposite. That is to say, isn't it interesting how today, in popular perception at least, which is of course ideological, we have at the same time the idea of complete self-objectivization in the genome, of course the horror of genome is that you see out there in a formula what you effectively are. And I claim that at a certain point, of course, if this promise will help, how true this will confront us with problems, like do you really want to know if it's already decided there, and so on and so on, how this self-objectivization overlaps with radical subjectivization in the sense that the prospect of virtual reality is that it will be possible at a certain point, through direct neurological implants, to switch directly from our common reality to another uh, computer-related, computer-generated reality, and so on and so on. So, again, what I claim is both these prospects, radical subjectivization, in the sense of reality itself will become virtualized, reality will lose its resistance, the friction which defines it as reality. This overlaps with its opposite, the radical, the radical self-objectivization. Where does this leave us? Because I claim this will be my final point that uh, uh, this this minimum, if there is a lesson to be retained today, from on the one hand. Judeo-Christian religious tradition, and on the other hand from the great philosophical tradition of German idealism, it is that reality itself is always defined as that which resists through the minimal resistance, friction, and so on. For example, as you know, even Fichte, the most radical so-called subjective idealist, posited immediately as correlative to the, to the, to the absolute ego some externality as what he called, it's difficult to translate from German, Angstos, that which you encounter and which gives you impetus to. So there must be, to cut the long story short, an external encounter. Uh, And here I claim that uh, we encounter the ultimate dilemma. To put it in religious terms, should we accept this standard Gnostic Attitude which predominates today, that is to say, the perspective is that of radical self objectivisation at the same time full immersion into virtual reality, the real as that which resists, potentially at least, disappears, or should we stick to this notion of the real as that which resists? It's interesting how even those who were exalted by the prospect of identifying the genome usually emphasized how. I quote a journalist, the old formula that every disease with the exception of trauma has a genetic component, that this formula is really going to be true. Ah, here I see how human freedom can be saved, to put it in naive terms. They say every disease with the exception of trauma. But is trauma for a human being really an exception? I claim that here, I'm now condensing what I wanted to say, uh, here I think we should stick more than ever to the legacy which is paradoxically at the same time the Judeo-Christian legacy and the legacy of psychoanalysis, namely the idea that what makes us actually, to put it in these old-fashioned pathetic terms, spiritual human beings is cannot be properly conceived in the terms of the inner self-discovery, you know, this Gnostic logic, go deep into yourself, recollect, immerse into yourself, that uh, what makes human being human being is some external traumatic encounter which derails you, and then it is in order to cope with this encounter that you develop the so-called symbolic spiritual dimension whatsoever. Because it's not here exactly the same. The lesson, for example, of Jewish religion which is precisely, remember, Jews, Jews didn't discover their God through, by way of looking deep into themselves. It was an external traumatic encounter. They were nicely wandering around, and all of a sudden there was this call from the God, nobody knows why, and it's an enigma to them. That is to say, here you find in Jewish Christian tradition precisely what psychoanalysis articulates as the encounter of the ultimate trauma, which is the trauma of the other's desire, of the desiring other in its, his or her impenetrability. And so I claim that, uh, which is why, to put it in uh, naïve terms, I don't fear these prospects of, you know, genome, of whatever total objectivization and so on. That's not it. And also I think that the alternative between uh, nature and nurture, or uh, your genome or environment, it, it doesn't cover the entire field, because trauma is not simply part of your environment. Trauma is precisely that which doesn't fit your, first to put it, standard environment, in something which derails you, which throws you off the rails. And such an encounter is that which, I claim, is worth saving in our legacy. And uh, now, really to finish, I'm tempted to claim that here, even, the difference between uh, the difference between uh, Judaism and Christianity can be elaborated in very nice terms, in 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 the sense that uh, in the Jewish tradition, this uh, mystery of the otherness is still how should I put it uh, remains this abyss of the this abyss of the other precisely in its otherness. The problem of the Jewish tradition is how to retain the openness towards the mystery of the other. And uh, here, let me conclude now with slightly provocative philosophical premise. Usually, officially, although they are both a little bit demodé-passé, but I think that at least Derrida doesn't deserve this, uh, uh, the opposites today are supposed to be, in popular predominant philosophy, deconstructionism versus Habermas. I claim this is a false opposition. I claim they both share a certain fundamental set of premises and basically supplement each other. What they both share is that the fundamental problem of ethics is how to retain the openness towards the other, how to retain the basic hospi- com- communicative hospitality. Of course, they elaborate it in totally opposite terms. For Derrida, it's precisely how to retain the openness towards these totally contingent encounters of the radical alterity of the other, while Habermas wants to elaborate a set of communicative rules which guarantee the communication with the other without constraints. But I think that, in a way, each of them gets from the other what he is lacking in this case. Habermas is right to emphasize against Derrida that if you do not elaborate this openness towards the otherness within the set of concrete propositions, then this respect for otherness can turn into some idiosyncrasy, which can be even an extremely violent closure. On the other hand, Derrida is also right, I claim, to emphasize against against Habermas that if you translate opening towards the otherness into simply a set of positive rules which guarantee Uh, which guarantee uh, communication without distortion, you already close yourself to the uh, the radical openness towards the other. What I claim is that this ethics, which is then also operationally translated into the ethics of a gap ultimately between ethics and politics, what both Derrida, I simplify it a little bit, but I claim not in the essential dimension, what both Derrida and Habermas share, although, again, formulated in a totally opposed way, is ultimately the idea of a gap between pure normativity and pragmatic politics. The whole idea of the Deridean democracy avenir, democracy to come, is, no. this idea of, uh, uh, that we have this undeconstructible call of absolute otherness, injunction, which, and that the whole point is that in any of our concrete particular real acts, We cannot ever catch up with this otherness. There is always a gap between the unconditional call of the other and what we can actually do, and that we should precisely respectfully retain this gap. That if we do not, then we fall either. Either we forget the radical otherness and we are in unprincipled pragmatism, or if we posit our concrete Political social measures as directly expressing, articulating this otherness, we are in totalitarianism. And I think that both share this gap. Now, without trying to convince you, just to tease you a little bit, the answer you will find in my new book, find in my new book on love and so on, I claim that uh, at, at the same time, the Christian legacy and Lacan do not accept this. Let me just give you an example. Why do I think like this? Think about okay, it's already boring how classical this example is, but nonetheless, just think about it, Uh, Antigone. How, if within this field of the gap between this unconditional ethical injunction and our pragmatic relative measures which never live up to it, how would you locate the figure of Antigone? I claim that if you really accept these premises of Deridan Habermasian openness towards the mystery of the otherness and so on, then Adligone should be dismissed as, as totalitarian, because let's read the play and you will see how. The only Habermasian in the play is Creon, the bad king. Creon argues. In the best Habermasian tradition, he gives reasons. He is not the, the, brutal, uh, uh, the brutal contingent, uh, uh, sorry, uh, capricious uh, uh, ruler. No, he says, basically his message to Antigone is, I understand your sorrow, but listen, we had recently a civil war. Your brother was a traitor. If we bury your brother publicly, my God, violence will explode again. And so on and so on. And what is Antigone's answer? None. She doesn't argue, read it. She says, no, I want because I want, I want. She simply insists. Point two, isn't it clear that her act is not located within this gap of uh, some kind of transcendental call, which is always other, and concrete pragmatic measures which never live up to this call? No. What she proposes is, how should I put it, a measure which is immediately at the level of this other. She is, in this sense, fully totalitarian. She unconditionally insists on her demand. Her demand immediately for her translates this call of the other. And what I claim is that within the Lacanian space, this precisely is what an act is. In an act, you can close this gap. Maybe Lacan is, for this reason, totalitarian, but then so am I. Thanks very much.
1: I'm sure I'm sure many of you have questions
0: but uh, please wait for the mic and speak clearly. exactly okay.
1: um, first of all thank you very much for a wonderful and inspiring talk um, in the
2: of named as Tibetan's authors mm. how they do themselves mm. so Similarly, there is a no inside, outside, in the sense of mm.
1: whether you describe in questions or even the uh, distinction
0: between first and question. Maybe, probably, I'm sure that I will not answer your question satisfactorily, so let me just give you a couple of points. First, uh, let me make it clear why it can be explained very easily. It was simply the reflex of a certain racist prejudice. Why Muslim and muslims were called like this? Because it was, as you maybe know, till the middle of our century, when, when muslims finally became more active, the cliché was that the muslims as this ultimately passive religion, where anything that happens, you just, uh, you just passively accept it, everything is faith, what can we do, and so on. And since, these so-called Muslims now in the camp, musulmanen, were usually seen as just like making gestures like this and doing nothing. This is how through this, uh, through this racist short circuit they were given this name. What is so interesting, I will not now, I will really become another Fidel if I were to answer you fully, but just to give you an interesting example is how you are probably aware that in uh, old ex-Yugoslavia If anything, the Muslims were the opposite. They were the most vital, I even am ready to use the term, uh, the most pro... Okay, I'm a little bit narcissistic here, maybe together with us Slovenes, but nonetheless, in a certain way even more than us Slovenes, the most pro-Western, multiculturalist, whatever you want, uh, uh, part of ex-Yugoslavia. No wonder that the best cinema, uh, uh, the best rock bands, all came from Sarajevo. Uh, Where I slightly disagree with you is only when you say that the war was fought for religion. I doubt it, if you ask me. I have here a much more cynical view. It appeared that way. But was there really? I think that it's only, it's the West who believes this, how should I put it, you know, there was a certain spectacle of religious warfare. states up to a point, stage for the West, but if you look at the structure itself, I would claim that uh, paradoxically, and a lot of time, incidentally, political struggles do function in that way, Hegel was aware of it, was that uh, ideology comes second, not in the prim, but in the sense that, not, that f- n- not in the vulgar Marxist sense, that first you have material element uh, uh, interests and then you mask them as uh, ideology, but in the sense that first there is a struggle, Then, in order to legitimize the struggle, you invent, ironically, in an artificial way, a certain religion, and you end up believing in this religion. And this is the miracle of ideology. The the, the crucial moment, as Hegel would have put it, is not how you start with an organic unity and then this got uh, resolved into something artificial. It's how often the process is the opposite one. You start with a conscious lie, you end up believing your own lie. This is, I think, if anything, something which defines today our multiculturalism, even the ideology of our century. It's not simply cynicism. My favorite mental experiment or test, do it yourself if you don't believe it. Read a very boring book, I'm not saying this because of politically correct reasons, I'm try- I, uh, read to read the devil himself if he is not boring. I'm speaking now about Hitler's Mein Kampf. It is a boring book, so I somehow succeeded in reading, okay, two-thirds of it, it's even worse than Ayn Rand, this Atlas Shrachter, (laughs) But, uh, but what I mean is that ask yourself a simple stupid question. Did Hitler really believe it or not? And you end up in a paradoxical answer that he was fully aware that he is manipulating, but at the same time he believed in it. That is to say, at a certain point, Hitler clearly how should I put it, shows his cars, describes the manipulation. He says, you know, in order to control the crowd, you must present them with a simple image of the enemy, control, and so on and so on. So he, he describes the procedure. But wait a minute, a couple of pages later, he explodes in a rage, which is obviously, to use these terms, whatever they mean, uh, uh, which is obviously sincere in a certain way. So I claim that, uh, now back to Bosnia. You know what surprised me and why I think that we, the Balkan, are in a way your future. We, that, uh, uh, we, the, the, the nations which emerged from, post, from Yugoslav war are the first, I claim, maybe one of the first, at least, truly postmodern nations. You know in what sense? In the sense that, let's precisely take the example that you mentioned Muslims. Do you know that Muslims in Bosnia does not designate an ethnic—sorry, I made a slip, which already tells the truth— does not designate a religious community, but an ethnic community. You can be an atheist and you are still a Muslim. You know, here we have a nice example of how something artificially imposed ended up the true point of identification for which people are ready to die and so on. You know how it all happened? Before, by before I mean till late fifties. There were simply Serbs and Croats in Bosnia, and everyone admits, everyone knows that ethnically, in the realistic, naive, biological sense, there are no Muslims. There are Serbs and, Bosni- uh, and Croats, and among the Serbs and Croats, as the result of the 400 years of Ottoman occupation, Some of them uh, adopted the Muslim religion. And it was always then, because as you probably know, the fundamental tension of old Yugoslavia was the tension for hegemony between Serbs and Croats. And Bosnia was always the point of explosion, which is why we even have a proverb, when a dangerous situation at any level, in family, wherever, is resolved. We say, oh, then Bosnia will be column, you know, it's it's almost a proverb. So, communists did something pretty ingenious, I claim, I think, in the mid-60s or when. They said, why not, in order to resolve this eternal tension or to whom do Muslims belong, why should we not proclaim them as an ethnic group, as a nation? and it worked wonderfully at least for 20, 30 years. You are not forced to choose, but the result, unfortunate result of this, was that today this division into Croats, Serbs, and Muslims, especially in the case of the division between Muslims and Serbs, is an ethnic division, this is what I would call conditionally postmodern, an ethnic division which is explicitly experienced, not as a matter of, your actual biological roots, but as a matter of choice. People were literally, in the beginning of 90s, in a position where they were forced to choose, to decide, what are they ethnically. Are you a Muslim or are you a Serb? So when, let's say, some kind of ethnic police stops you in Bosnia and says, okay, what are you, Muslim or Serb? They are not asking you simply what your family was. They are asking you which side did you take? Just to conclude so that I don't spend much time uh, where I think Western multiculturalism went wrong here. My God, this was horrible. Namely what? Look at what goes on now in Kosovo. This is the reason of my anti, at least a certain kind of multiculturalism. In Bosnia, the West was reasonable enough to see that simply these three nations cannot stand each other, so they silently allowed partition into three units as So at least they have time, the people have time to at least forget a little bit the old traumas. And now things are incidentally pretty fast improving. For example, uh, you can now, even Muslims and uh, Croats do now risk going through Serb territories. It is up to a point returning to normal. But the West speaks to this dream that Yugoslavia was once a multi-ethnic paradise. And in order to save their honor, they want to retain this at least for Kosovo. So now we have a totally crazy situation where, as you maybe know, for example, we have one Serb family living within an Albanian enclave, and three people and then 50 United Nations soldiers guarding them and so on and so on. You know, it's madness. They don't want to admit that simply it would be better, at least for the time being, to admit, to admit the distinction. But again, when you say religion and so on, yes, it is a religion. People are ready to die for. But nonetheless, it is already postmodern religion in the sense that there is clearly this element of reflexive choice in it. As to use Schiller's terms, it's not naive religion, it's sentimental religion. Sorry if I talk too long. Sorry? uh, my god, what, 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 I mean, I'm, wait a minute, I'm, I'm a Stalin-Leninist. You know what Comrade Stalin said? We communists have a special body and so on, never die, and can go on forever. So, ask yourself how long you can go, no? I'm eternal, I'm, I'm, I'm like Tom and Jerry Leninist, you know, Tom and Jerry, who, you cut the mice, it starts again, it never dies, no? So your problem.
2: Um, I admire your work, I, I'm a little
0: um, but yes, go to but yes. When you begin <laughs> when you begin by this, I see the your Norman Bates knife uh, <laughs> rising there. <yes. laughs> the affirmation of fundamentalism raises a number of questions in my mind. One of them uh, is
2: this, that you spoke of false fundamentalists. And I don't think there's anybody who the true fundamentalists were, and, and I, I see where, in a sense, fundamentalists might be tolerant because they're not yeah. requesting after the other, but in fact, a lot of fundamentalists seem to be pretty intolerant. Yeah. Um, then, uh, the danger of, uh, of questing after the other, uh, while it always accompanied uh, um, imperialism, uh, it seems to me that questing after the other can serve a positive function. Uh, in other words, imperialism wasn't all destructive destructive It also spread certain, uh, certain possibilities for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, care, let's say. Uh, and then uh, if, the, if the movement for the other is to be considered uh, a problem, mm-hmm. uh, isn't the movement for the other rather similar to the idea of trauma? In other words, isn't trauma an encounter with the other? Uh, Those are three questions about
0: your overall picture. Okay. Okay, 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 okay. Let me try, really, to be brief, maybe to allow you for another question. First, I think that, you know, there is trauma and trauma. Let's take precisely the male relationship towards femininity. I claim that this idea that behind the prejudices, the mask of what we men conceive as femininity, there is some concealed, inaccessible to us, otherness of the true femininity. This is the ultimate male myth. And the same goes for colonialism. So I claim that the ultimate racism is not, we can reduce the water, they are primitive and so on, but it's on the contrary, this idea that there is an inaccessible mystery out there. This is the eternal... Again, to use this 50 word, Anstos, motive of colonialism. There is always, the more you conquer the other, all the more there is some mystery there. So the ultimate trauma for me is not this inaccessible other, but, for example, in, te- in terms of femininity. And here I agree with my good friend, enemy, uh, 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 Judith Butler, who once was quite justified, I think, in criticizing me from my early... Revisionist days, and she said that the difference between her and me is that I still believe that there is something to be looked, searched for as an authentic feminine position beneath or behind male distortions, while she knows that there is nothing behind the distortions, no. And I fully accept it. In other words, the true trauma is not that you encounter some ooh, like, uh, horror behind the mask, but that there is nothing behind the mask. Or, to make my fa- one of my favorite quotes from Hegel, the true trauma is, as Hegel puts it you know, in, this crucial, in this crucial passage from consciousness to self-consciousness, that uh, behind the veil of appearance there is nothing, only what you put there. Or, to quote another Hegel's point, which is, I think, crucial precisely for how to relate to the ethnic other. You know this, I quote it all the time, but I think it's a perfect one. And Hegel says that the mysteries of the Egyptians were mysteries also for the Egyptians themselves. And I think when you realize this, then you are authentically not Eurocentrist or whatsoever. That is to say, I claim that the most racist imaginable attitude is this idea that we will never fully understand the other because, you know, we never fully know the context, there is always something more to be learned and so on. But what if the other simply is in itself, or him or herself, not fully contextualized? You know, the the, the 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 mistake of this logic is that the obstacle which prevents us from fully understanding the other is simply an epistemological one. We do not yet know what. The, for example, you say something. We can easily play these solipsistic games. How do you know what you really meant? I would have known exactly all your life, but. I cannot. Does this mean that I can, cannot fully understand you? No, because I claim that you do not fully understand yourselves. D- give, let me give you one example, which I will finish, from Daniel Dennett, okay, officially my enemy, cognitive psychology, who, who quotes, you know this nice quote from Lincoln, like, you can fool some people all the time, you can fool all people some of the time, you cannot fool all the people all the time. Now, as Dennett points out, uh, there is a fundamental logical ambiguity here. Because when you say you can fool uh, some people all the time, this can be read as if there are some idiots who can be deceived all the time, some, always the same people. Let's say I'm an idiot, you can deceive me all the time, or it can mean all the time. That is to say at every time there is some idiot, but once it's me, then it's maybe you, or (laughs) no. So, but now, Dennis' point where I agree with him, spontaneously a hegelian man, is that it's wrong to ask what did Lincoln really mean. He probably didn't know himself. It just sounded to him a nice phrase. And I claim that Lincoln is not here an exception. You know, language in itself has this openness. And I wonder if the trauma is not to be uh, thought more here. Apropos, so that I don't get lost, uh, fundamentalism, I would simply say that Of course, it was ironically meant and so on, but what I meant is simply that there is something which spontaneously, in a totally naive way, I cannot but designate as fundamentalism. If Tibetans and Amish are not fundamentalists, then I don't know who is fundamentalist. Point two, I claim there is a radical difference absolutely evident between them and so-called moral majority fundamentalists. A certain dimension, the dimension of envy, obsession with others, enjoyment, etc., is not present in these cases. That's that's all I meant, that there is a certain kind of, the conclusion that I draw from this, which is maybe a little more unpleasant for some of you, is that the first thing that we should do today, if we still want to play the game of being some kind of radical leftists, it's do not accept the opposites, the description of bad versus good guys, the way the media or the public opinion presents this opposition to you. I don't think that the opposition of liberals versus fundamentalists is the, fundament- the basic opposition which should structure our political struggle. I don't think, I think that multiculturalist liberals themselves, that at least the predominant multiculturalist attitude, had its own implicit racism. As to what you said about uh, uh, respect for the other, opening to the other, and so on, yes I agree with you, but nonetheless I would emphasize how always colonialism had this element of false respect for the other. Let's take India. India. What surprised me is to what extent Indian colonizers always had a great respect for, you know, this Buddhist uh, wise or Hindu old wise man. In other words, they were always ready to admit that we Westerners are vulgar, mechanistic, Cartesian, all the Al Gore theory, you know, he's the big anti cartesian and so on, and that they are infinitely wiser than us. What they feared was not the otherness of the other, but what if an Indian were t- would try to develop technology and remain the same as us? I claim that the strategy of colonialism, is not let's erase the difference, let's uh, impose our view. It's on the contrary, how to maintain the difference. This was always the, the most fundamental uh, the most fundamental goal of, of colonialism. How to maintain the difference? Nothing suited better, again, an English colonialist than this famous Indian otherness. Oh my god, how wise they are. We are worthless of their wisdom. We immersed in our materialist culture, and so on. Yeah. Uh, there are two of them, yeah. So yeah, please, yeah.
1: Quickly,
0: very complicated. The first thing is that,
1: I have doubts about the, the, the nature of, um, even though you sort of, um, you try to delimit the nature of, um, of the Tibetans or the Amish yeah. as truly fundamentalists. I mean, we're privileged here to live near the Amish I and to know um, that, uh, that their relationship to cell phones and cocaine and other things is becoming increasingly problematic. And I think there is, obviously, in some way, some kind of envy of, yeah. So what
0: you'd consider yeah, 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 yeah. The second thing is okay, that, good um, point, yeah. what I, I find is sort of extraordinary is that you're
1: talking about um, the um, the general sort of Judeo-Christian mm. um, envy of other cultures and it seems today you know if you look at Madonna or anyone like that it's actually um, Judaism that in some sense has become the envy kind of inner sanctum because of the Kabbalah and it's this nature it's once again become exoticized to my own. All of this is to say that, um, in some sense, my real concern is not, and maybe this is emphasis the point that you'll make, is not that there's a problem with respect to um in being the other, but that if we're going to talk about fundamentalism, the real problem is maintaining a relationship to the other, where on one hand we believe in the other, but on the other hand, as Jacques-Alain Miller says, there is no other. And that's, that's sort of the problem. That's, I mean, that strikes me a paradox, and I wanted to tell it very quickly, a joke. Hmm? And the joke is that um, there's a, a Jewish family living on the Upper Upper East Side, which is predominantly Jewish New York, where it used to be, and um, their child is sent to a school on the Upper West Side, and he comes back one day and he says to his father, you know, I can't believe it. They are telling me that there are three gods. There's a father, the son, and there's a Holy Spirit. And the father says to him, my son, there is only one God, and we don't believe him. Yeah. And that's the I mean that's the paradox that has to be worked there, doesn't it? Because it's not just a matter of maintaining some kind of fundamentalism, but also maintaining a space within fundamentalism.
0: I no no. I let me try again to be my God, but it's difficult to answer very briefly. But first concerning Amish and so on. I'm well aware of this point. I'm well aware of where the Amish get caught in their own paradox, because on the one hand, you know, they are against what is called gemut, this arrogance or what, no? But on the other hand, it's the elementary Hegelian point to be made, that the way, nonetheless, their whole economy is how to mark the distinction between them and the other. And the more they make themselves modest, the more actually, through the very procedure, they want to mark, to designate their modesty. The very procedure of making it is extremely arrogant. So I think it's an extremely interesting, significant point to go back to the original guy himself, Jakob Am, who was extremely aggressive, violent, and every Amish will be extremely embarrassed even to mention him. So here we have, I think, this nice example of the dialectic described by Hegel already apropos of asceticism and so on. How? the very procedure by means of which you try to assert something undermines the goal. Because you know how, what are the problems with the Emmy's, like buttons, no? Are they allowed, are they already gemut, arrogance or not? Are they allowed or not? And maybe you know then, you have radicals, no buttons, then you have those who allow buttons, then you have this middle school who allow only one button, like... and, and, And you know, so I'm well aware of the problems. As to Kabbalah, yes, I'm aware of it, and uh, unfortunately we don't have time to go into it, but uh, Kabbalah interests me, you know why? Because uh, Kabbalah is where, within Judaism itself, some kind of obscene, repressed dimension returns. The official doxa is, before in paganism, gods were fornicating, whatever we know what the Greek gods were doing, and so on. But then with Judaism we have this pure God, and so on. Yes, it's true, but read Kabbalah and you have a treatise on vaginal juices and so on and so on. All this returns with a vengeance. Which, uh, allow me to make a further point if you agree, I always ask myself a naive question. And now, recently, I spoke with some Jewish theologists and they attempted to agree with me. Namely, uh, there is one cliché about two cliches which I think are utterly wrong about Jewish religion. One is that uh, they are, in contrast to the Jewish religion of sorry, to the Christian religion of love, they are the religion of the guilt, superego and so on. Second, that they that other for other religions, God, gods were anthropomorphic like humans, they prohibit Iconoclasm, no, they prohibit images because their God is pure spiritual. I think wrong on both counts. First, if there is a religion which has no superego, to avoid any misunderstanding, I mean this as, a, as, a, how put it, as something extremely positive, it's the Jewish religion. Because uh, uh, they, they think in legalistic terms which precisely avoid all this dialectic of guilt. For example, the example that I described in my book, The Fragile Absolute, which People think that they're making fun of Jews there. No, I admire them for them. You know how they circumvent this proposition, which says, where it says in the Bible, it says, no pigs should be raised on the land of Israel. No problem. Go north of Tel Aviv, you will find three kibbutzis where three feet above the land they raise peaks. No? <laughs> now, we, from our Christian. Uh, but they are cheating and so on. No, no superego. Second point, more interesting, iconoclasm. Let's ask ourselves a simple question. Against whom is this prohibition actually directed? I claim it is not against pagans, but against the founding gesture of Judaism itself. Contrary to the appearances, I would claim that it is the Jewish God who is the first fully anthropomorphic God, in the sense of being fully a person. It is pagan gods which are not really personal gods, but just some kind of impersonations of cosmic forces, yin-yang, whatever you want. Jewish God is the one who says, I am who I am, who, as we learn, made man in his image. And this is the reason why we, in the Jewish tradition or whatever, are not allowed to make images. Not because God is some spiritual entity betrayed by an image, but because if we were to make an image, we may come too close to him, how should I put it? Something horrible would, come, would have come to the day. Which is why I think that, I think, who was it? Uh, was Lakula bart who made the claim that uh, the prohibition of to make images is somehow connected with the prohibition to kill, is correct, because the image that would emerge would be precisely the image of the primordial crime and so on, you know, maybe the story uh, better than me. So again, I am well aware of all these problems. What I am trying to do in my recent work, in this book on love, which will uh, maybe appear, it's uh, uh, where does here Christianity stand? No? (laughs) Namely, I tend to agree with you that that, uh, that, that Judaism is turning into almost an object of envy. And I know that, uh, to avoid any misunderstanding, I personally, I am a hundred percent old-fashioned materialist. When I speak about Christianity and so on, I speak about a certain structuring of the symbolic space and so on. Why?